This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the power of shared experience and the freedom of honesty. I've been thinking about the relationship of content to structure, artistic productions, and the relevance of time and place. I've been thinking about the process of creation, evolution, metamorphosis, and letting go. My guest today is Isaac Butler. He is a co-author with Dan Coyce of the new book, The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. Butler is a writer and theater director. He wrote and directed Real Enemies with the composer Darcy James Argue and the video artist Peter Negrini. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, including The Guardian, Slate, and American Theater. Welcome, Isaac, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Oh, hey, thank you so much for having me. So you hold an MFA in creative nonfiction from the University mm-hmm. of Minnesota. And I was just thinking as I read that, I'm like, that that title of the degree has taken on new meaning for me in this day and <laughs> age. It's like, you know, did you did you major in fake news? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's very funny. No, you know, at some point uh, uh, a couple decades ago, some some folks had the idea that, you know, maybe you should be teaching the art of how to write nonfiction, much like you teach how to write plays or how to write poetry or how to write fiction, that, that there was a sort of fourth genre of writing that was being neglected in the, um, you know, higher education context. And so to try to differentiate it from other forms of nonfiction that are wonderful, like textbook writing and, you know, straightforward journalism and things like that. They kind of coined this term creative nonfiction. Now, the the poor dears who did this have now had to spend decades publicly having to define and redefine and insist on a definition of what they even mean by the term, which is which is too bad. But all it means is, uh, you know, approaching the art of writing nonfiction um, uh, as an art and with the, the tools and ways of thinking about art making that you would with, um, something that was sort of more purely imaginative. Which is completely valid. It's very different from, from maybe different types of, um, grant writing or, or, uh, as you said, textbook writing or legal writing. And so I think, I think it's been unfairly (laughs) sullied in, in this last few years. Yeah, absolutely. I will also say there are some people in the field who um, have, I guess, tried to argue that maybe factual accuracy isn't that important to creative nonfiction. Um, I very strongly disagree with them. So I think some of that uh, wound yeah, is yeah, I think that's where it crosses a line between fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. Those are actually the elements that characterize <laughs> exactly. it as such. Exactly. All right, and, and another of the terms that was in your bio, I also had to had to sort of chuckle at, where you said uh, you wrote and directed the Trump card, a meditation on the peculiar rise of Donald Trump, and I I watched and listened to some of that, and I, I'm not sure meditation would be the word that I would have chosen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, uh, yeah. I mean, Mike Mike Daisy, who created and performed that, and and I directed it. You know, it, I would say that it is uh, not a meditation in the sense of you know you're breathing deeply in and out, and you have your feet resting on the floor, and now think about Donald Trump because it's very hard to have that kind of reaction to Donald Trump. Um, you know. Uh, yes, uh, now there is there is red face, sweating, yelling, yeah, exactly. agitation right from the get go. Yeah, I feel like if you're, um, you know, if the thing that you're meditating about, if the thing that you're sort of focusing on, your meditative focus is Donald Trump, you probably need to rethink your meditative practice. No, this was a, this was a meditation in the, in the sense of, you know, we are looking at Donald Trump from as many different angles as we, as we possibly can and thinking about what he means for our culture in a, in a serious and complicated way, even while the show is, you know, scabrously funny and very, you know, loud. I will say, though, Donald, Donald Trump could be uh, an icon in the metaphysical create and reality um, genre, because, you know, he is a prime example of someone who has created a reality for himself that no one else would have thought possible, and that he's completely un, unprepared for. And yet, <laughs> you know, there you yeah, go. Ab- a- ask and ye shall receive the universe will give you what you ask for. 
<laughs> something like that. Yeah, he's the secret gone horribly, horribly awry. I, I think that with, you know, Donald Trump, I mean, the weird thing is, is that if you believe the reporting in Fire and Fury, the reality is that he's created is one that he didn't even think was possible and that he's not sure he wants, you know, being being president of the United States, uh, that, you know, the plan was not that they were going to win, but they did. So, I mean, it's it's a very strange thing um, uh, that he that, that it's very strange for us to think that he might view himself as trapped in the prison of the presidency as much as the rest of us feel ourselves to be trapped in the prison of having him as president. And I think maybe later in the interview, we'll talk about that a little more, because we're also thinking yeah. about the fact that, ugh, you know, I have to talk about Trump again. And and I started to thinking about in my interviews I've done in the years prior, we rarely spoke about Obama. Um, mm-hmm. His name rarely came up. And so that's interesting just in and of itself. But first of all, before we dive into, and I, I want to start with the collaboration aspect sure. of The World Only Spins Forward. But before that, um, I want to know how it went today at your high school, because you spoke at your high school today. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a weird time of the school year for them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I was, I was, I wasn't like giving a talk. I was more, it was, it was the lunch period and, you know, people who were available and who were interested could show up and we'd talk about the book and I'd answer questions. It was really interesting. Cause you know, I graduated from high school 25 years ago. Uh, and the woman who directed me in plays back then and ran the arts program, at the high school still runs the arts program now. And so, uh, you know, it was really fun to be able to see her and to see lots of other folks who've been very important to my, to my own journey and to, to speak with them was a real treat. Um, and to learn about sort of what's gone on in the school re more recently, um, you know, 25 years, it's quarter century, a lot's changed in that time. And so, so that was really fascinating. I mean, one of the weirdest things, maybe this is interesting or not, but the thing that I keep thinking about is, you know, they did a, they did a big renovation to the building. So the theater that the kids are in looks uh, like the theater that I was in when I was there, except it's larger, first of all, and it's like a hundred feet further away from where the old theater was. So it was very disorienting because at first you think you're in the same context. You're actually in this just slightly different context. So it, it wasn't quite, you can't go home again. It was more like you can sort of go home again. Well, and how wonderful the theater's actually still there and they still have the, the yeah. drama program and, and what a gift for your teacher. What a moment for her. There was I just so. a, a YouTube with, um, the, I think he's the founder, the CEO of Alibaba Ma, and he was talking about education and, and how the focus should be on all of the elements that are human, that a computer cannot do, that computers can do mathematical equations and so much of the other elements of production better than, than humans can at this point. So the focus should really be on on the arts and collaboration and, and humanity, which I thought was especially coming from from that particular voice saying yeah. something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was a thing where um I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson a couple years ago on Twitter was like, you know, we need to educate kids and how to think about science or something like that, right? And people were responding. It's like, we've already been doing that. It's called the humanities. Do you know what I mean? This idea of, you know, how to look at the world, how to critique the world, how to see the world, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that, that is to be found in the liberal arts. That is to be found in humanities. That's, that's to be found in the arts. And, and it's, it's, it's a thing that we're, I think, really undervaluing. I think that pendulum may be starting to swing in the other direction a little bit. You know, you read a couple articles about uh what people are looking for when they are hiring or uh and stuff like that and it seems like the pendulum might be swinging a little bit but um it's really gone far in the uh direction of away from the the liberal arts during the course of my adult life which is something i find very um difficult and sad and, and frustrating and so I, I definitely think this book is going to help in, in to shift it back just a <laughs> tiny bit. Um, and, and maybe even in, in a, a larger way to get people thinking about this. And so let's start with the genesis of the sure. collaboration. Dan says you were a gracious partner on the slate cover story about angels that you published together in 2016. And, and that is um, part of what prompted this project. What was what was that initial article and, and how did you decide the two of you to, to work on it together? 
Sure. So um, what happened was Dan um, had pitched to Slate this idea of doing a piece on the history of angels in America, which at that point we were coming up on the 25th anniversary of its uh, premiere at the now defunct Eureka Theater in San Francisco. And um, that got greenlit and he quickly realized it was too big a story for him to do on his own because he's also an editor at Slate and a you know, busy guy. And so he uh, emailed me to see if I was interested because he had edited some pieces I had written at Slate. And he brought me on board. And then very quickly, I, I actually don't even really remember the conversation about it to tell you the truth. We decided that it was going to be an oral history, that we were going to get out of its way, uh, the story's way, and that we would interview as many people as possible and try to weave them together into this kind of tapestry of voices telling the story. Uh, and the thing that Dan and I discovered very quickly that we had in common is that we had both seen the play in 1994 on Broadway when you could see both parts of it in either one day or two subsequent days. And we had both seen both parts of the play. For your listeners who don't know, Angels in America is um, in two parts that are two separate plays, each one of which is about three and a half hours long. The first one is called Millennium Approaches, and the second one is called Perestroika. And so you could see both of them. And both of us had that experience that uh, of going to the theater and just feeling really transformed by it. We were both teenagers at the time, and we just felt uh, this sense of the possibilities of what art could be uh, and our own sort of purpose within art and in the world were, were, were changed and enlarged by seeing the show. And so we discovered we had that in common. And then as we started interviewing people, we discovered that uh, lots and lots of people had had that experience. Whether they were working on the play or seeing the play, they felt transformed by it. And, you know, no one we spoke to was ever like, oh, yeah, Angels in America, I kind of remember working on that. You know, no one no one had that experience of it. To everyone, it was amongst the most important things they did in their lives was either work on or, you know, as an audience member, see that play. And so the project just kept growing and growing and growing. And then um, we knew pretty early on that we had too much material to fit into one article. So we started to think about it as maybe a book, which once we had to cut that article down to be the appropriate size to run on a website was really, really helpful because anything we cut, we could just sort of say to each other, well, when we get to do the book, we'll do that section. You know, because there were some difficult things to cut over that period of time. And then, you know, we were very lucky the, that that it turns out that lots and lots of people wanted to read an article about Angels in America because they had had that life-changing experience of the play, too. And then um, yeah, very soon after that, we sold it as a book. And we finally, you know, got to dig back in and interview many, many more people and radically expand the story into the book that it is now. Yeah, and the book that is now is almost, what, 400, 400 plus pages. Yeah. You, you interviewed over 250 people. That's right. Um, so that's an expansion. Um, and, and, and in depth, you're getting their opinions, their stories, their photographs. They're diving in deeply to their experience, uh, personal and professional, as to how this experience with angels, no matter whether they were a tech or producer or director or a dramaturg, we're going to talk about what that is later on, um, sure. how it changed their lives. And you had just said, you know, you decided you needed to to do it through a collage of voices and mm -hmm. with these voices in conversation. Um, why? Why was that the, the rational decision to make? Well, I, again, I'll say that, that we didn't talk about it all that much when we initially decided to do it. It was a very intuitive decision. It felt right to both of us. It felt like it was what the piece needed. You know, I also work in theater and Dan actually has a, has a theater background and a thing that we like to talk about a lot in the theater because theater is a collaborative art form, right? So how do you talk about what the right decision is? How do you decide what the right thing to do is, you know, whether that is when should an actor move from point A to point B or what should the set look like, you know? And one way that we are taught to talk about it that I find very helpful that I think more disciplines outside of theater could use is to ask the question, well, what does it need? It being the play, the production, what does it need or what does it want to be? And you'll find when you ask that question, 
that the thing that you are creating often has its own needs and its own desires almost. Um, and that they might be different from what you want personally, individually. And I think that's true even if you're an individual creating a work of art by yourself. The work of art um, has demands and has things that it needs so that you can do right by it. This is something that Tony Kushner, the author of Angels in America, speaks quite articulately about when he has writer's block as he's trying to finish the second part and then make it right. He had to grow in a way to become the artist that that work of art deserved, you know? And, um, so I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, you know, Tony Kushner or anything like that. But I'm just saying that as a way of thinking about art and creation that I find very valuable and useful and have for a long time. So in a weird way, I feel like the piece itself made up its mind that it wanted to be an oral history. And Dan and I were just smart enough to listen to it. Well, and I think the two of you are like Tony Kushner in the sense of what you've created and the levels of what you've created. Um, as far as the, and especially focusing on the collaboration aspect in the book, because I think everyone might think generally, oh, it's sort of a collaborative process, but you've, when you're creating a play, but you know, you've got the writer, you've got the director, and then the actors are sort of following suit and maybe they have a little creative license. But throughout the book, I thought that was these, and I won't say journey, because there were multiple, multiple journeys of everyone involved in the yeah. many, many productions, as far as development and collaboration, and um, growth and creativity, and even new, new, um, within one production, um, you really explain to the reader again and again, how each each play, even in the same day when maybe two were done, they may be different because it's all action, reaction, and interaction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you like, I, I can give a couple of examples of that great. off the top of my head. So, you know, Tony Kushner is eventually, you know, uh, uh, doing this play um, with the National Theater in the UK. And this is in the early 90s with a director named Declan Donlan. And um, Declan and Tony are very, very close friends now. Uh, and they had a very, you know, um, fraught working relationship, which they both describe, I think, very humorously within our book. But they had a very fraught working relationship. And one of the things that they wrestled over had to do with how do you get out of one scene and into the next? What are those transitions going to look like? When actually, like speaking as a theater director, you might not know this when you see a play, but those transitions from scene to scene are one of your biggest jobs as a director, shaping and managing those. And the way um, Kushner wanted it done originally, it was that you'd sort of have the scene and then you'd have like sort of a little pause while the set was changed and then you'd have the next scene. So there would these, be these sort of, uh, one of, one of the people involved in the production calls them reverent pauses. But um, his idea was that the audience like needed a moment to catch up to what was going on and to think about what they had just seen that we're not saying like a minute we're saying like a five seconds while you change the set or whatever and Declan was adamant from the beginning that that would not work and that actually like what the play needed was momentum and the play needed to feel like it was this unstoppable machine that you were running to keep up with and that was part of what was exciting about it and so what um he did and he really you know, kind of forced this choice on Tony was he dovetailed the ends of the scenes so that the, if, if you were going from scene one to scene two, the second to last line of scene one was actually the first line of scene two. Then you'd have the final line of scene one. Then you go into scene two. Now, Kushner did not adopt that going forward, but what he did adopt going forward, there's an old author's note in a published version of the play that says no blackouts. Right. So he did adopt this idea that the play wanted to move as fast and be as sort of, you know, uh, this, 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 have this kind of perpetual motion machine feeling. Um, another really great example that's discussed in the book has to do with the character of Belize. So one of the characters in the play is a uh, black gay X or maybe XX drag queen. He has a conflicted relationship to his own history of doing drag, who is um, uh, the main character's best friend or your best friend. And then he's also a nurse who winds up the nurse to uh, the real life figure of Roy Cohn, who's dying of AIDS over the course of the play. And um, 
you know, Belize comes from an experience that is not Tony Kushner's experience. It comes from the African-American experience. And one of the reasons why that character works is because Tony Kushner was very open to hearing the critiques of the various actors who played that role. And, you know, they would sometimes ask him some fairly challenging questions about that character. And Tony would do rewrites based on that character. Now, they didn't write the lines of that character. They, they understood that wasn't their place. But, you know, Joseph Mydell, who played Belize in, in London, would say, like, you know, why is the, the black character always the caretaker to the white character in plays and in movies? Like, he doesn't seem to have a life of his own outside of these characters. And Tony came back and he had written stuff about Belize's life outside the world of the play and his boyfriend uptown and, and everything like that. And I think that's another aspect that's so interesting during the throughout the book is this idea that these rewrites were happening all the time, all the time, up until the day of the production, that there were these previews where audiences were coming in and um, giving their impressions and, and um, rewrites were happening. There were disagreements between the director and the writer. And yeah. there was a fight with Harden um, over this wig that she was going to wear. And the director was like, you're not wearing the wig. And she's like, I'm wearing the wig. I'm not wearing the wig. Until the last moment, he literally rips it out of her hands. Um, yeah, that's these... one of my favorite stories in the book with Marsha Gay Harden and George C. Wolf arguing about, about her costume. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so relevant because they're arguing about so much more. Um, and, and you really make that clear in the book. Throughout the, the development of the play, and I'll say plays because there were m many versions, um, there are lots of people involved from directors, actors, tech, who are referring to it as a hot mess at certain <laughs> moments. Um, and I was wondering, in the collaboration with Dan, were there moments while you were writing this book um, where it was a hot mess? You are dealing with a lot of uh, voices and information and timelines. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a really funny question. And I, I just want to footnote for a moment and say that Tony Kushner is still making changes to Angels in America. There are little changes that are going on to the script to Perestroika um, in preparation for the new Broadway production, which just started previews this week. So, you know, maybe, maybe we'll do the same thing. We'll make lots of little adjustments to the book uh, every time it's, uh, you know, when it goes to paperback and drive our publisher crazy. But um, with Dan and I, I would say that we were worked out an awful lot of the structure before we started organizing any of the material into actual chapters. So we had very early conversations of, you know, does the book want to be in three acts or five acts? You know, does it, because Millennium Approaches is a three-act play and Perestroika is a five-act play. So which one of those two structures are we going to use? And we decided we would use a five-part structure like Perestroika. And then it's, okay, so which um, which productions are we focusing on or like which time periods are doing and what? So we had worked out an awful lot of that stuff um, so that once we sat down to draft our various chapters and edit them and everything like that, it would – we, we – both had agreed to some extent on what we were doing. That made it a lot easier. Um, we were also very open to changes in that structure or what chapters were doing or what went where as it went along. I will say, of all the things that I worked on, the thing that was the messiest and the most difficult to 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 figure out is that there is a section of this story where the play is being developed at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. And there's a bunch of quotes in that section where no one knows how many developmental workshops the production actually had. You know, how many times were they actually gathering in a rehearsal room to do a little bit of this play and then show it to people? And uh, we, I, I was never actually able to get that question answered because no one involved knows. We do know about sort of like three major parts of its development that happened at the taper. And so we were able to report on those. But the problem is, is that people who had been in all, not everyone was in all three of them, was involved in all three of them, but the people who were involved in them um, sometimes were confused about which workshop I was asking about when I interviewed them or would get the various ones confused because it's been 26 years since that happened. And so sorting through that and just trying to get that, um, that order correct, uh, correctly nailed down, which is maybe about 10 pages of the book. Like it's not even a lot of the book that took an incredibly long time that probably took, you know, a couple, like at least a week 
just to get those 10, just to figure out what the outline of those 10 pages was going to be. But I love that because I love the chaos that's involved in the creation of this incredible piece of, of art. And that it and that everyone sort of, they may be frustrated by it or angry by it, but everyone's participating in it. And this was originally yeah. supposed to be one two-hour play, you know, that Kushner <laughs> had agreed to. And then it's just this live beast that just grows and changes and, and it's just so fantastic. So I want to talk a little bit about the impact of Angel. Sure. Um, your co-author Dan had quite had said, like voice, had said, no work of art has moved me, compelled me, baffled me, and taught me the way Angels has. And so many people involved with Angels had that same experience. Where There were many actors, not just one or two, who had said they weren't sure they were going to be able to ever act again, and at least one didn't. Um, yeah. So, yeah, several, actually, several people who have been actors essentially quit acting after doing Angels in America. Maybe not fully quit acting, but Joe Mantello, who played Lewis on Broadway, is the same Joe Mantello who directed Wicked. He went on to be a, a director, and he's acted maybe three or four times since Angels in America. David Marshall Grant, who played Joe in that production, really transitioned to being a writer and producer. And he actually um, created a TV show called Code Black that starred Marsha Gay Harden, who was in that same production. Um, there was a woman, the woman who played the angel on the national tour became a kind of therapist and guru. Um, you know, some other people quit to be, or left, quit the theater to become activists and writers. So it really did have a transformative effect on people. And, and how about on you? Do you remember seeing it? And do you remember there were, I know some people too that said they still, you know, they've thought about it every day and they still think about it every day. Um, so how, do you remember how it may have impacted you when you saw it and then diving back in so deeply? Has, has that changed you or the way that you approach your work in some way? Oh, wow. That's a really, really great question. I will say that there is a particular thing that seeing great, you know, by which I mean capital G great theater does to you. And I don't, at least for me, no other art form is capable of doing this. And what it does is you actually feel on a kind of molecular level, like you're being transformed when it's over. And that was my experience of seeing Angels in America. I left it and I walked out into a, a, you know, kind of not warm night walking through Times Square. This was, you know, back when Times Square was not Great. Um, walking through the, the sort of seedier Times Square of the early 90s. And it just like the air on my skin felt different. I mean, it, it was that kind of, you know, really transformative experience. Um, Angels in America is does a thing that's hard to do, which is that, you know, it's a very long experience to go to go do it. It's eight hours, either one day or two days. Uh, you know, split up over two days. And um, there's something that happens when you experience great art like that in a room full of people as a shared experience. And particularly a work of art that is this huge, that is weaving together so many themes, that is asking so many big questions about who do we want to be as a people? And that it's doing all of that, and this is a very important thing in the early 90s, that it's doing all of that with a gay man who is a person with AIDS as the everyman protagonist is just um, this, this huge, huge thing. And that it is a play making an argument for hope, not a Pollyanna-ish hope, but a real hope, a hard-earned hope, a, a difficult hope as a political necessity, that it is doing that uh, you know, he started writing it in the late eighties. By the time it got to Broadway, it's 1993, but that he's doing that in the worst years of the AIDS crisis, um, had a particular power. And I feel like today, when you see it today, the AIDS crisis is very different now. Although I should say I had a friend who died of AIDS last year. So it's not that it's not, it's not like the AIDS crisis is over, but that the, now that the AIDS crisis has been transformed by various medical breakthroughs. And now that, um, uh, 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 there's been so much forward progress on the cause of gay liberation. There's a temptation to see the play as dated, but I think what Trump's uh, election really 
drives home and what living in that this new era of of resurgent of the resurgent right really drives home is that the questions the play is asking the things the play is about those are never changing those are going to be with us those are issues that have to do with the human condition um so uh one of the ways that i felt changed over the course of doing this book was that you know halfway through trump was elected and being able to work on this book had a kind of similarly galvanizing effect for me that I think working on the play did for the actors in the 90s being like, when are we going to get rid of Reagan and Bush? You know, when are we going to reach that promised land? When are we going to throw off this yoke and be fully accepted? Um, and so it had a similarly galvanizing effect uh, 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 for me writing this book now. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking to Isaac Butler, co-author with Dan Coyce of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported, non-commercial radio. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Isaac Butler. Uh, his new book, The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. So we were talking about the impact of angels and, and the impact on you and, and on all the people that saw it. Tony Kushner said, at the end of the show, audiences are usually transported into some kind of communal sense. And in an interview with Charlie Rose, he said the, the attention that angels was getting is probably more due to the fact that's happening uh, coincident with a transformation in American culture and politics. We were talking a little bit about what maybe it would have been like had it had it come a little later or had it started now, and it and it it hasn't stopped. Um, and his writing didn't stop. I mean, they one of um, his uh, dramaturgs, uh, Oscar Yudas, said it felt like he had a front row seat to watch Tony struggle for six years to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. What did you? discern um, some of those truths to be that that you saw when you saw the play or that you feel that that viewers were were experiencing well sure okay great yeah that's 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 a great question that's one of my favorite quotes in the whole whole book that quote from from oscar eustace about you know his role in that show because you know part of the the story you know, it, of the play is Oscar Eustace is one of the, you know, you know, commissioned that play from Tony Kushner and and helped him develop it and directed several productions and workshops of it. And eventually, you know, he and Tony parted ways. He was, he was essentially, you know, fired from doing that project and had to watch it sail on to Broadway without him. Um, And he and Tony are incredibly, incredibly close friends to this day. And hearing them talk about that experience was one of the more difficult experiences of either of their, you know, professional lives. I, I was very moved that they were were willing to share that with us. Um, back to the play, though, for a second. Uh, so it's all the play. I think anything you realize at reading the book, anything it's all the you play. talk yeah. about about the play, um, is all the play. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that great quote uh, from Ron Liebman that uh, he would say when they were done, when they were just about to walk on stage and do a run through the play, he'd say, you know, everything that happens in the world happens in this play. And so to try to articulate only a few truths, you know, it's sort of like, how much time do we have? Um, uh, So, you know, Angels in America is doing, it's folding in a lot of different things. At its core is this idea about change, that change is the necessary and inevitable force that shapes human lives. And that part of being alive is changing, whether it's changing for the better or not is sort of secondary to the fact that change is absolutely key to being alive and being a human being. And so in the face of that change, there's a real question about what we want to do in relationship to that. And Tony gives us, you know, the kind of right-wing vision in response to that in uh, the Angels and in Roy Cohn and, you know, sort of outside of the world of the play, Reagan and Trump, which is that, you know, you kind of try to to stop that change. You try to, to resist progress. It's that William F. Buckley definition of a conservative being the man who stands astride history shouting stop, right? And then, you know, but the, the consequences of doing that are catastrophic. That destroys people from both the inside and out. It oppresses people. It, 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 
it helps directly lead to, you know, the unnecessarily high um, uh, death toll of the AIDS crisis in America, um, much of which happened because the Reagan administration neglected the crisis because they did not care about the people that it was happening to. And, um, uh, and in response to that, you know, Tony Kushner is saying, no, we have to move forward. We have to embrace change. We have to accept the incredibly difficult, um, uh, painful sometimes, but also joyous work of trying to change for the better. And, you know, that's the thread that runs through the whole play to me. And through that, he manages to weave in all of this other stuff, like, you know, differing left-wing visions of, of the world and of America, of America and differing right-wing visions of the world in America and race and class and gender and Mormonism and, you know, all sorts of other things. The thing, the, the, the sort of dramatic tool that is um, that he uses so well within the play that you know, I know from talking to him, sort of he he a, a lot of that comes from Shakespeare, is this idea of the dialectic, this idea of advancing the play's themes through opposition, through opposing characters and opposing ideas, which Shakespeare does in all of his plays. And if you look at those scenes in in Angels in America, he's usually placing two people who ideologically have core differences. And so the conflict they're having in the scene is about what's going on personally between them. And it is also about ideology. It is also about different ways that they see the world. And it's so interesting because in The World Only Spins Forward, you also see those same dynamics and the consequences of change and the difficulty with change and what happens when things don't change as far as the development of the play and the, the different productions as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you you said earlier, and I think you're right, that sort of everything in the book is also in the play or has an analog in the play or mirrors the play. And, and, And I don't know that we set out to do that, but that is absolutely something that kind of happened by the time we were done writing it, that thematically... The story of the of the making of the play is thematically directly related to the story of the play itself. And by choosing to do an oral history, especially formally, the story of of um, making the play has analogs in the story of the play itself. And one thing we discovered is because there's these interlude chapters throughout the book, one focused on each of the play's characters, where we interview as many actors as we could get our hands on who played those roles. And another funny thing that comes up is, you know, the, the people who tended to get cast in those roles had certain similarities when we interviewed them as well. You know, like the, the actors who played Roy Cohn are like big talkers and very entertaining storytellers, right? The actors who played Lewis tend to be very intellectual. The um, actors who play Harper tend to be very open and vulnerable and, and, you know, comfortable sharing a lot about themselves, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And then there's Joe. And you don't keep coming back to Joe, right? Because everyone keeps coming back to Joe. Is the one character that maybe didn't change when he had the opportunity or change in the ways that may have led to more freedom and honesty. And we're still not sure, right? Who knows? You said said Tony's still writing. So that, that that may also change. Yeah, well, Joe, I mean, the interesting thing about Joe, um, I was just having a conversation on Twitter with some folks about this yesterday. You know, the interesting thing about Joe is uh, I think it is absolutely essential to the complexity of this play that you have one character who does go on a journey that involves attempting to change in a way to live a more authentic life and things still don't work out that well for him. You know, because I think if you if you don't do that, then the play becomes sort of simple propaganda on some level for change. Right. But that you have a character who does the thing the play is demanding of us and does not end up necessarily better off for it, I think is part of what makes it a complex and rich work of art. Um, For your listeners who don't know, Joe. Joe Pitt is a Republican lawyer. Uh, He's a clerk for an appeals court judge in the state of New York. He's a protege of Roy Cohn's, and he is a closeted um, homosexual. And the level of Joe's denial is so severe within the play that it takes him a lot longer to, as, as Tony Kushner put it, get with the program, right? It takes him a really long time to realize even that he needs to change. And he starts trying to do it in perestroika. But by the end of Perestroika, he has not 
come to the point where he is, you know, sort of fully ready to go out into the world. There's a lot of journey left for him. And I think a lot of people have interpreted that, including maybe actors who've played Joe as well, have interpreted that as Tony having a kind of final negative judgment on the character. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that that is part of him trying to tell the truth about how hard it actually is to change for the better. Right. I think probably more of us could relate to him than anyone else because it's it's not going to happen in seven hours. It's, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm a neurotic uh, Jewish guy, so I, I relate to Lewis the most out of everyone probably. But, you know, yeah, I mean, there is a thing where... Um, uh, but that uh, aspect, right? Because I'm guessing there yeah. are aspects, and that's, again, what makes it so monumental, is there are aspects of each individual character that yes, everyone is going to have to relate to in some regard. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is probably something that you or I or any of our listeners, you know, there's probably some form of deep denial we have about some important part of our lives or ourselves, right? It might not be to such a profound level. I mean, Joe's denial of his homosexuality, which goes beyond the closet, right? It's like he just refuses to even look at it enough to put it in a closet has given him an ulcer. He's physically falling apart. He's trapped in a horrible marriage with a woman. He's kind of slowly destroying, uh, even though he doesn't want to. And historically, and I think this is really important. The, um, Joe is played by incredibly nice people in real life. You know, the person it was written for originally this actor, Jeff King is the sweetest guy on earth. David Marshall Grant, who did it on Broadway is a saint, you know, it's, uh, 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 and I think, you know, there is this thing that you can be at heart a, a nice and kind person and that the kind of denial that you engage in about parts of yourself can really make you into kind of a, a monster, which is how his wife, Harper, who's also a character in the play, sees him, that he's this sort of faceless nightmare creature. And um, I, that's, that's, that's I, I think, a really profound thing. So Angels won the Pulitzer Prize and is described as exploring the AIDS epidemic as a metaphor for spiritual decay in the 80s. And we've talked about some of the other aspects that the the plays explored as far as truth and uh, authenticity. And, um, you know, it was done in this time of sort of fear and terror. And many of the actors in your book talk that you interview in the book, they talk about the messages that they had of what not to be growing up, um, not to be sensitive, not to be gay, not to be a, a drama queen. And that this play in itself was fabulous. And the actors got the opportunity and everyone involved, the tech people too, I keep bringing them up because they're, they're so involved, that they got to be fabulous. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's part of the kind of benediction at the end of the play that Prior Walter, the play's main character, you know, says to the audience is you are all fabulous creatures, right? There is a way in which the the play calls upon us to recognize our inner fabulousness. Uh, um, and the play does a really fascinating thing that I've been thinking about a lot in um, the wake of the, the recent school shooting, right? Which, um, uh, to go off on a tangent for a moment, you know, these shootings are by men, you know, um, and they are by men who, um, amongst many other things, you know, the model of masculinity that they have both embraced and are being torn apart by, right? That is a very, very toxic one that is rooted in sort of very traditional ideas of masculinity. And, you know, we first met our editor when we were shopping the book around, or, or and it was right after the Pulse nightclub shooting. In fact, our article came out, I think, the week after the Pulse nightclub shooting. So I've been thinking about that a lot. And, uh, you know, what are the models of being a man that our culture has? And one thing that Angels in America is really adamant about and that Tony Kushner has been very adamant about as he talks to actors who are doing the play is that Prior Walter, who's the play's main character, is also its play's toughest character. I mean, he is tough as nails. And the source of his toughness is his effeminacy, right? His effeminacy is not 
a weakness. He is a hard-edged queen, and that that is that he is fabulous, and that that fabulousness is a source of strength for him. The same way that fabulousness was a source of strength, as many people articulate within the book, for the gay community, particularly in the eighties, um, uh, responding to AIDS. It didn't wasn't invented in the eighties, but it was there in the eighties to be drawn upon as a source of strength, and you know. Um, uh, I find that to be unbelievably moving and important. See, it turned out not to be a tangent at all. (laughs) I guess not. So let's talk a little bit about the title of the book, The World Only Spins Forward. Um, Critic Frank Rich, and he kind of comes in a lot at the beginning. You're like, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Um, (laughs) But he says, people no longer build cathedrals as they did a thousand years ago to greet the next millennium. But Angels in America both spins forward and spirals upward in its own way for its own time. And then there was an actor in the book who talks about the world only spinning forward as well. So I'm just wondering where the title came from for the, the two of you. Well, the title comes from the play itself, as do um, actually the titles of every chapter comes from the come from the play itself, um, and that's another way that we were sort of listening to the play to find out how it wanted its story to be told um, was to use lines from the play as the title. So I, I'll read you if you don't mind. It's actually the very end of the play. Um, this isn't really a spoiler or anything, but they're very very famous last lines of the play, which are. This disease will be the end of many of us, but not nearly all. And the dead will be commemorated and will struggle on with the living, and we are not going away. We won't die secret deaths anymore. The world only spins forward. We will be citizens. The time has come. Bye now. You are fabulous creatures, each and every one, and I bless you. More life. The great work begins. So um, to me... There's a lot going on there. The world only spins forward, though, very specifically goes back to this idea of um, change being an inevitable and necessary part of human life and that you cannot deny it. It is coming. Change is a coming. And there's not really, you know, the question is what you're going to do about that. And that it connects very, very specifically to this idea we will be citizens. The time has come. Very specifically, the world is spinning forward um, and we are going to be headed towards a time where the idea of what citizenship is is read more expansively and is something that we can all participate in. And, you know, the world has spun forward a lot in the gay rights movement, although there's still a lot of distance to come. It's not just like gay marriage is now here. And so everything's fine. You know what I mean? There's plenty of States where you can still be fired for being gay. Um, and there's people trying to take away adoption rights and and things like that. Um, but it has spun forward a lot there, but I do not think that, that, that those quotes only apply to people with AIDS or only apply to the LGBTQ community. Um, I saw people, you know, um, tweeting about those uh, brilliant high school students demanding change in gun control over the last week. And they were quoting these lines from the play. We will be citizens. The time has come. The world only spins forward, which was a wild thing to see. I think how cool is that? Yeah, it was was incredible. Absolutely, uh, unbelievably moving. Uh, And I also think that, you know, if you think about, we have a president right now that's turning, that has turned ICE into these kind of, you know, secret police come imperial stormtroopers that are yanking people out of church and throwing them in the back of a van and then disappearing them and deporting them and stuff like that. And so, you know, this is really a time when we need to be thinking about citizenship very, very broadly and, and protecting each other and taking care of each other. And I think, too, to be conscious that we're always spinning forward, but there may be some looping back, right? It's like when you draw that line, that straight line, but there are those loops in it. It's like it's moving forward, but there there may be some loops. And so let's talk a little bit about, because this is also so much a part of the play as the play was itself and the people behind the play were the audiences and the, the ways that the audience were involved in this unique play and in a unique way. Um actor, uh, one of the actors who you mentioned already, I think, Lieben says, we were doing a play, but it became something else. And and they talk at one point about when they heard um, some murmurings in the audience, and they kind of realized that the audience was saying the Kaddish with... with um, Ethel Rosenberg, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, isn't that wild? Uh, I mean, there is a way in which, you know, particularly in the very early productions when 1986, which is when the play takes place, was four years ago, you know, but when it was 1990, so 1986 is only four years before, you know, that feels like very, very present. Um, and also to do this play during the, the, the AIDS crisis meant that a lot of the people in the audience were themselves sick, which is what that Ron Liebman quote was about was that, um, people who were actually from like an assisted living facility for people with AIDS were coming and they were sitting in the front row cause they couldn't hear very well, or maybe they they couldn't see very well. Cause you know, AIDS manifests in a lot of different ways. And there were a lot of different ways that you could could get sick. And so, for example, like um, with Carposi sarcoma, which is the sort of most famous um, uh, opportunistic infection associated with AIDS, which is where the purple lesions come from. You know, those lesions could show up anywhere on your body. If they if those lesions showed up in your eyes, you went blind. If those lesions showed up in your lungs, you died. You know, um, uh, you you would suffocate. And so. Um, people who were having trouble seeing or having trouble hearing, you know, they'd be in the front row and it's wild. I must imagine to do this play about the AIDS crisis with people who are visibly suffering from the disease right in front of you. And that they can see them, right? The actors talk about that in your book, that they look out and they can see who's in the audience as well. Yeah, well, that's especially true at the Mark Tate perform because it's a three-quarter thrust space, which is the kind of way that Shakespeare's stage was, um, you know, where you have actors on three sides. Of, you have the audiences on three sides of you, you know? So, like, the audience is really present in a space like that. But also, you know, you you do the play, and these people, you know, very few of these actors were famous before this play, and then they became superstars over the course of doing it. So you have to imagine you're, you know, Marsha Gay Harden walking down the street or whatever, and someone comes up to you and says, my son died of AIDS, I want to talk to you about it, you know? And that was a really profound experience that um, they also talk about in our chapter on the U.S. touring production of Angels in America, that, you know, every city they went to, people would come to them and say, I'm an ex-Mormon, or, you know, my son died, or I have the disease, or, you know, I just came out of the closet, um, and and stuff like that. But I, I think one of the really interesting things, and we tried to track down people who had actually had this experience, and we had a little, we, we, we weren't able to, but, you know, many of the actors remembered people telling them that, you know, they had gone to see it with their parents, uh, and in between Millennium Approaches and Perestroika come out of the closet. And you know, then went go back. And then went back to see the second half, right? I mean, how amazing is what? What is better than that, right? What? How amazing is that? Um, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I think that now it's a little bit different. It's been twenty-five years, and I think the stories that you are going to hear from people are more about their experiences with the the play, actually, you know, from earlier on in their lives. But um, uh, you know, it really it's about real stuff, and it's not, and it's very honest about what it's about, and that motivates people to want to participate in it as an audience member. It's funny because I was going to ask you, you know, what what are some of the unique qualities? But I'm thinking we've talked about some. The fact that that transformations are going on continually behind the scenes, on yep. the stage, in the audience. Um, Kimberly Flynn says it's an indestructible play, and uh, Tovey, who plays Joe in London, says it's not a fixed performance. So, what makes it? be being quoted 25 years later by the students in Florida. Yeah, well, I I don't think, first of all, I should clarify, I'm not sure the students in Florida have quoted it. I just saw people quoting it when discussing those, those students. But I think that there is a thing that, first of all, the play is just really well written on a simple craft level. The scenes really crackle. The characters are clearly drawn. The dialogue is really sharp. The there, It's really beautifully written. And it is also, this is a thing that's often forgotten about it. Angels in America is one of the funniest plays of the 20th century. People forget that, but it is incredibly funny. Even in its most devastating scenes, it is very very funny. And um, uh, sometimes so funny that it becomes a a stumbling block occasionally. You'll see there's a couple sections in the book where they talk about that. Um, So I think part of it is just it's really friggin' good. And then I think the other part of it is, again, that the questions it's asking and the conflicts that it's staging are still with us. Uh, They'll probably, you know, as much as we progress, 
you know, those conflicts will probably also always on some level be with us. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that great art, particularly great art that's kind of entered the canon, so lots of people are exposed to it over the years, one of the things that it does is it connects us to this whole history. You know, theater is the like the first art form, you know, it's one of the first art forms, you know, it's created in, in Athens thousands of years ago. And I think that, that, and we have those plays, you know, we have some of those plays, we have some of the couple dozen of those plays from that time period. And so there's a weird way in which when you do a play or you see a play, you're engaging with that play, but you're also engaging with centuries of history of the form at the same time. And that gives a good play or a great play, a really unique kind of power that is different from the power of seeing a really great movie or hearing a really great piece of music. So my, my kids have started watching Friends, and so I, uh-huh. I've noticed, okay, the high-waisted pant is back. And <laughs> and today I heard an ad for People for the American Way. Um, so that maybe never went away, but it's it's um, growing again. Uh, wow, so, People so, for the American Way. Right? So yeah. it's like, okay, Norman Lear is like, I've, I've got to somehow re- reinvent. Um and so some of these issues and, and um, things from the past are, are coming back. Uh, and as we said, it, we're spinning forward, but maybe looping back in some areas. What do you think, as um, having worked so much on, on the, the book and the play, and um, with your work on Trump and, and all that you're doing right now, what do you see as, as the next thing? Oh, boy. Uh, well, you know... Um, it is funny, by the way, how kids watch Friends, right? That's a really weird thing that Friends has maintained this huge influence in our culture because it's all on Netflix. You know, all my all my college students watch Friends too. Um, it's very strange because I watched those episodes when they aired. Right. Um, you know, it makes me. And feel... we had to wait a week for the next one. They cannot comprehend that. They are so glad they didn't live in that time. Yeah, exactly. It's very strange. It's very strange. Um, So, I mean, I think the immediate work right now, the immediate thing is weathering and hopefully undoing the current, you know, political crisis that we are in. You know, it it is a crisis to have our current president and his current gang, um, uh, in charge. It's a, it's, it's a deep and severe crisis. It, um, and to the extent that it hasn't been an existential crisis for, for America, but is instead just sort of a big, a big crisis, but not an existential one is because lots and lots of people are working extremely, extremely hard to resist and to delegitimize Trump and to keep him from being effective uh, in really brave and amazing ways. So I do think the immediate work is going to feel probably not that different from when Clinton came in of like, you know, we've got to undo the damage of, uh, or when Obama came in, right? We've got to undo the day as much as we can, the damage that's been done. And from there, try to see how we we can move forward. There are some really big issues that confront us right now. Immigration being a big one, global climate change being a, you know, a really huge one that could end human civilization by the time our, our you know, I don't have grandkids, but if I had grandkids by the, you know, by the time that they were adults, you know, human civilization could be ending because of it. So, you know, I, it's, it's hard for me to see beyond the immediate right now. Uh, I do think that, you know, Trump is so extreme and makes the, uh, his affect is so extreme and he makes the subtext of the conservative movement into text, uh, which I think is part of what terrifies his fellow Republicans is that he, he doesn't understand that the conservative worldview is repulsive and monstrous. And so he sort of gleefully espouses it and that reveals how soulless and destructive it really is. And my hope will be that that, that the backlash that that is inspiring will cause us to move forward rather quickly once he's gone. We'll see. There's a lot of institutional things in the way, like that every state gets two senators, Um, you know? Um, uh, So we'll see. But I think there is an opportunity as we push back against him to build a, a, a future that is more just and equitable and human. 
Right, so maybe we'll end with an Oscar Yudis quote that I found in your book. We will choose self selfishness and fear and greed or solidarity and inclusion and love. It is either the end of the world or the beginning. Yes, that's great. That is a great place to end. Oscar's a really smart guy, and he puts it far better than I could. You put it pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) That was an addition in sync with... Uh, All right. So this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I've been speaking with Isaac Butler, co-author with Dan Voice of The Ascent of Angels in America, The World Only Spins Forward. And and so is there a place people can go for more information? Do you guys have a website? Um, Um, Are are books on sale already? Oh, yeah. So the book was released February 13th. So you can get it wherever books are sold. There is a, you know, a nice, uh, if you go to Bloomsbury's, you know, website, uh, bloomsbury.com and you go to slash us slash, uh, the world only spins forward. Or, you know, if you go to Bloomsbury's website, you can search for it. If you just Google the title, you're going to find a bunch of different places that sell it. Um, uh, and you can, you can get it wherever books are sold. All right. Well, it is fabulous. As right. all the other fabulousness that that uh, it is researching. So thanks so much, Isaac. It was really wonderful to speak with you. It was and wonderful. Con- to congratulations speak with you. on your day today. Oh, thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Bye bye. All right. Thanks, Isaac. Oh, thank you so much. It was a real yeah, pleasure to like do. Like reading through, I'm just like, oh, how did they take all of this information <laughs> and that- create this? Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay. Have a great evening. You too. Bye bye. Bye.